Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. Lauren Hoffman is a fantastic singer-songwriter from Virginia. She now lives in Los Angeles, which is from where she joins Wheels Off which is to say me, (laughs) on a Zoom call. She came into the music industry at a really young age during a very strange time. It was as the old business model was collapsing. And she came in hot, man. She was making a record for Virgin Records. She was courted and wined and dined and all of those things. Um, We were contemporaries briefly. Uh, And then she got out. She decided to um, get some lawyers, get out of the major label contract, go make some indie records, go make records on French labels, go make records under different uh, names, you know, band names, different forms. She's tried a lot of things. Her path is winding. Her perspective is fascinating to me. I think the way she's kind of chronicled all of it in her own brain and processed all of it uh, is is really it, it's it's to me it's really a useful perspective on the music industry as it was as it is now and more importantly as she points out during during this whole thing as it is on a larger level from a from a more bird's eye view we all sort of get hung up on how there used to be all this money from cds how then there was uh you know now we've got this other weird industry that's very streaming driven and we always get hung up on on these things and and lauren forced me during the course of this interview to really step back and and um get out of that narrative that that has so much to do with the delivery systems that we depend on for our music. Anyway, I, I, um, I'm really glad that our mutual friend Jeff Ulrich connected us to do this interview because, as I've said a couple of times, her perspective is one that I find really fascinating because I was around for the end of the old business model. I also, like she does, like so many of us do, I... Uh, have to function within this new model. I wonder what will be the next model. And then I find myself in a conversation with with Lauren, wondering if maybe all of this worrying about models, delivery systems, and et cetera, is a waste of time. I'm really glad I got to speak with Lauren for this. The conversation goes on a little longer than some wheels off. I think I just caught up, I got caught up in her take and uh, and the way that she works through this stuff and expresses it, I 
I'm really kind of excited about this Wheels Off because uh, as much as any of these, this is one that I would be, as a listener, excited to plow through. So please enjoy Lauren Hoffman on Wheels Off. Welcome to Wheels Off, Lauren Hoffman. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Um, for the edification of our listeners, from where are you logging in? I'm in Los Angeles, California. Oh no, why do you say it like that? Are you sick, are you sick of LA? Um, I think I, I've, I've understood what the warnings were about, maybe. Or uh, also, it's just been a weird, it's been a weird thing as we moved here two years before the pandemic mm -hmm. and things weren't really settled for us particularly i wouldn't say and then there's a pandemic so it kind of feel started to feel like we could be anywhere and that it's actually kind of when you're not from here a hard place maybe to access certain kinds of resources like new friends all went into their little pods of old friends yeah <laughs> and it's been a pretty isolating experience and strange where had you been before that? Well, before I had my daughter, I was a lifelong music nomad from the age of 17. And then I like overseas went, even, right? You're Yeah. I did really well in France with my first album and kept going back for the next albums that I had before I had my daughter. And then I made my Fourth, sort of a strange choice, uh, but I made my fourth album in Israel and didn't quite complete it. Had some uh, wild things happen in life and wound up back home and a solo parent in Charlottesville, Virginia. So Charlottesville is my hometown scene. You know a little bit about it uh, yeah. from ATO. You're with ATO. Mm -hmm. I'm on ATO and, that and grew Red out of Light. That scene. Oh, you are. Yeah. <laughs> So my first, my intro to the whole music business was that I interned uh, in my, it was sort of a junior slash uh, senior year of high school because I graduated early. So I, um, I interned in the early version of the uh, merch. It was like their merch office, but it was also the beginning of red light management. Like I was going and getting Corin's uh, dry cleaning and stuff or fill, oh. like sending people tickets. They would call in order tickets on the phone and then <laughs> put the tickets in an envelope crazy stuff kids and then send it out and t-shirts and stuff like that um so i was uh i was working there and then from there i met shannon whirl and then kind of went off into a different world and didn't stay around that scene very long but that was how i got started i mean charlottesville was definitely very impacted by the rise of the dave matthews band yes so for listeners that don't know that whole uh ato records and red light management both stemmed from dave matthews and the dave matthews industrial complex yeah which was like an office on the side of a nightclub back then <laughs> yeah and now it's yeah. now it's like 12 percent of the entire music industry yeah, exactly exactly <laughs> it's really funny um so what are you working on right now lauren uh and how does it light you up hmm one of the things that I've really tried to protect this whole time, it's 25 years, is that feeling of what lights you up. It's so important. And I think that we have to 
manage it a little bit. Like I don't take it for granted. And I think that's one of the reasons I've made some choices that people haven't necessarily understood from the outside, but that's usually why is to stay really connected to that. What lights you up thing. And, um, and it's usually a hard thing to put into words. I'm pretty excited about like, this is the first time I'm trying, uh, to do the full arranging and producing and everything alone at home. My bigger problem is time management and project management type of stuff. Um, because it, it always like, you know, I start listening, I start playing a one chord and I get like lit up by it. You know, I, I get excited about doing something a little bit risky. And that, like when there's that mix of something that feels like a little bit weird or a little bit of a risk and it's inside of something that feels satisfying and comforting and at home. And I'm talking like musically and melodically here. That is what really lights me up is finding that balance between comfort and dissonance or, I mean, that's a lot of what I first learned was this is the fifth and this is the fourth. And these guys are going to take you back to the one. And like that sort of sense of when do you feel pulled back? When do you feel uncomfortable and you need to go somewhere comfortable? And when does it start to stagnate and you need to take a risk? And what's that risk going to be? And is it going to make me smile when I do it? And that's what I'm always into. God, it seems like the way that you're approaching composition is so thoughtful. Like you, do you understand music theory as well as it sounds like you do? <laughs> no, it's, and I almost feel like it's the opposite of thoughtful, but except that like the, uh, the funny thing about like the term mindful is it's almost like you're supposed to be no mind, which yeah. like seems ironic. ironic. Um, but I will say that it's very in the moment, curious and attentive to my, I really don't want to get like off on a tangent about things, but the music business that drive me crazy or stuff that like just are my giant Feel. frustrations and things I'm pissed off. Feel free, please, because it's fascinating. That's the whole point of this. <laughs> okay. But if I get into an external headspace over here, it's a, what I'm describing to you that you said was thoughtful is a very in it, like first person perspective of like, a chord change that makes me smile or like a lyric that you twist a different way. And then you're like, Oh, that's so cool. Um, if at that moment you think about like what somebody, you know, like your worst, uh, social media troll is going to say about like that lyric, like you're fucked. Then you can't write a song from that headspace. And I feel like the music business keeps asking us over and over and over to be in this headspace where we stand outside of ourselves and look at our work as if it's being seen by somebody else and then have a strategic plan about like who it's going to impact and why and how, what they're going to think about it, whether they're going to like it, like all that stuff. If that's in the room, it just it it kills the inspiration for me. It makes takes the magic away. So it's really ironic. It just feels like it's an industry that's asking me to do exactly the thing that makes impossible for me to impossible for me to do the thing that should be the seed of of the whole industry. It's funny. Yeah, it's funny how often that comes up. And I, I remember having lunch with a, a manager one time during interviewing different managers. And he said, um, 
well, you know, I'll tell my artists, think about how does the world see you? You have to under, understand how the world sees you. And then what do they know about you? And then you have to give them something that fits in with what they know. And I'm like, well, I do not even understand what you're saying. Like, how you can't know what you look or sound like, much less how they perceive you. No. Gross. No. And, and, <laughs> and also it seems like sometimes I just get a little like, like everything goes sort of blank because my my sense of what I'm doing and, and what the importance is of this thing that we're doing in the world and what it even is, it feels like it doesn't match the words people are saying about this this thing, this entertainment thing, this money-making enterprise, this like chasing the trend or getting attention or kind of all these things when in my experience, it's almost like it's closer to religion it's closer to spiritual experience. It's more like shamanism. It's more like therapy. It's an emotional language. And I mean, I sit in movie theaters and if there's somebody next to me, like there's all these times when I want to say, I want to elbow them and be like, don't be fooled. The feeling you're having right now is not coming from the screen. It's music is doing this to you. <laughs> and like, I've been in spiritual groups and stuff like that where they they, they tell you what you can't listen to. And then they do have very special sort of sounds that they, that they, that they bring into all of their sessions, something like oming or other ways of using music and sound and singing as this unification thing that makes people feel like they're having this transcendent spiritual experience. And I'm like, come over to my house and like grab a instrument and we can have this without this, uh, without the cult, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> or our Music own little is, tiny cult. Our own mini cult, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think there's some things we can take from, we can learn from spiritual cult leaders. <laughs> I like that. It, it's funny. The I used to really grapple with uh, what is the what is a cult of personality that that comes up a lot. Um, yeah. But I mean, I feel like our job is encourages that. Like it's built on different cults of personality, right? These that's what a rock star is. It's the center of one of those. Yeah. But then you're getting more, that's like the Venn diagram that goes more towards celebrity and like less, mm -hmm. less the spiritual connection community thing. Although I see some people doing a really good job with it, like um, who can have like these sort of tiered experiences for their fan base and like really connect on a, on a close level and find a way to do that with their, um, with their closer fans. That is, creates a community. I mean, I guess the kids sort of call it a stan, I believe, or just a fandom. Uh, or I noticed this with the recent, I loved the recent uh, series of Stranger Things, the recent yeah. season, um, and how it kind of all came together and it was very satisfying. So I started like going around on the internet and checking out what was happening. And people are really, they're, they're kind of doing what my daughter and I do on the couch is like, we're watching the show and then we're pausing it. And then we're talking about all kinds of stuff and we're relating to it in our own way. And we're connecting through this fiction that is telling us something about reality. And that's what I think that music can do too. But uh, I don't think it needs to be the cult of personality of the, of the person, the sort of celebrity transmitter person of the music i think that the music can serve more of a purpose to be for 
you know, the people to digest and to experience together and to connect over and have it be a way of telling their own stories. And, and, and I, I find that by being a little bit of a, I don't know, making some sacrifices partly, or just like not going along with some of the, uh, um, cultivating of a, a cult of personality about myself and kind of leaving the music out there that, uh, I see that way in which people can, um, have it in their lives in a way that has nothing to do with me. And I like that, but the industry doesn't want that. They want the opposite or like the industry doesn't know what it wants. The industry is in a traumatic response to, to the internet and it still is. It has been for 23 years or something. So <laughs> I think that's kind of temporary. And what we're doing is a, is a much longer, the technology and like what the industry is up to these days is a short story compared to the tradition of what we're doing as songwriters, musicians, and storytellers and emotional shamans. Oh my God. I love this. I, I really love your, your take on this. I think is so, again, it's just, it's so thoughtful to me. Um, uh, I think about Marshall McLuhan and his book, the medium is the massage. And and you're just, you're making me think of it or it's the medium is the message. Um, <laughs> but, I like both. <laughs> well, I know. I feel like that there was like an alternate pamphlet he had put out called the medium is the massage, but, but I always thought that sounded even better, but I feel like what, what we do is the message. And then the medium is literally the medium. It's is it vinyl, is it CD, is it a streaming platform service or whatever? But I I love that you're I love the way you characterize it as a two-decade-long traumatic response to a technology shift. Mm -hmm. And and it's again, it's like the business, the people that pay us to do what we do or whatever make it possible to continue to do what we do are all completely caught up in the trauma of what of the bullshit of their business and you and I just have to keep doing the real thing. Yes. God, do you feel, do you feel like you are beholden to or held captive by the people that make it all possible? The, the, the business? Uh, no, because, um, I, I guess I feel a little bit shut out maybe, or, like, I don't know where I fit. Um, you know, I had this big record deal around the same time. Uh, I was listening to you on a different podcast, the Spinal Tap themed one. Oh, God. Yeah. That was so great. Uh, I have some stories. That, yeah. Um, <laughs> so where was I? Oh, that you, I realized you guys were shopping and doing this whole sort of lunches on the, on the label sign thing the same time that I was like 95, 96, 96 so mainly crazy. The, the amount of money crazy they threw times. around. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of that money came from the technology, the history of the technology is so important here as to how these moves work. And, and I hate how it sort of gaslights this into this myopic thing where we think it's like we win or lose based on the strength of our music when there's huge other things at play. And, and at that time, um, they were riding high off the CD because everybody was rebuying their collections from vinyl and cassette. Everybody rebought on CD. There was this glut of money that they could. There was this one guy from Atlantic who like was from the jazz department. He was like, I absolutely cannot sign you. But he took me to very fancy lunches at French restaurants <laughs> just because he just kind of could. Um, that all dried up, obviously. <laughs> uh, but while while I was in the process of making that first record and it came out in 97 um 
one of the things that was happening was all the, the mergers and acquisitions kind of phase of the 90s, which I think gets overshadowed by the internet phase because right before they realized the doom that was ahead of them via the internet, there was this phase of building up like communications companies and entertainment conglomerates and these big labels that have been kind of tastemakers and run by some cult of personality kind of person, like the guy from Virgin or the guy from Geffen or whatever. Um, those were becoming corporate. They were merging into these corporate structures. Then they started laying off and, and uh, changing the personnel a lot already. And then comes the internet. And like, by the time I'm working on my second record, I walk into the, the, the record company offices and I don't know anybody there. And um, some other stuff had kind of happened very quickly in like the, the social world around me that was a bit confusing. And, and, and I just didn't feel like this was looking good for me. Like, I didn't feel like I had a champion. Uh, yeah, I didn't have a champion and I didn't have um, a, a, str a strategy that was compatible with kind of those resources. And I was really young still. I was 20, 21, 21, I think, when I uh, oh. got a lawyer and got out of my three record <laughs> contract. Um, you ask people at the end of the show a lot of the time what they would say to their yeah. uh, like 21 year old self. And of course, there's a part of me that wonders, you know, what if I had stayed? Um, but I, I think that, you know, it was the right thing at the time because that was, I saw people's records go on, on shelves. I saw bands like, um, floundering and not having a right to their work. And I was just figuring out what my work was and, it wasn't uh, a time when I wanted those people to be telling. I didn't want them in my ear deciding who I was and what this work was when I hadn't really gone down my own path and figured that out myself. It was just kind of a reverse thing. I didn't have like demos and then a band and then an indie label and then a touring business. And then, you know, I was sort of plucked from my bedroom into a recording studio and it like started big. So, I went back to making like a simple album, learning how to sing kind of a, a take, a full take that you could just use that take. I wanted to be able to do that. Um, I was just, I really loved recording and songwriting more than, than any of the other stuff. And, and I really wanted to focus on that. And, and I was also really optimistic about the internet. I said, I like went and taught myself HTML, hooked up a website with PayPal, was selling downloads, like, uh, on your honor. And I give a PO box and people were sending me like money and the, they're like great songs. And it's like open an envelope and there'd be some cash in there. Um, and that was all really exciting. And then, you know, it's kind of, it was sort of one thing after another since then with MySpace and iTunes downloads, just when MySpace and downloads was kind of starting to go, well, oh no, now it's Spotify and Facebook and MySpace has been somehow bought and destroyed, or I don't know what that conspiracy was right there um and keeping up with each thing has been incredibly has been incredibly hard and and the sort of gatekeepers are like oh you have to be big on instagram oh you have to be big on and i'm start starting to be like how much am i going to invest in these markers that you need in order to 
uh, validate me in this moment when this moment is going to pass and then it's not gonna be relevant anymore how many myspace followers i have so i keep sort of feeling like i keep plowing on just to the just to the outside um but then there's only so much you can expand and 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 grow your thing when you're doing it alone oh so my I've, god I say too much to answer each of your questions. No, 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 no. I feel no. very pe pent up. I have so much in me that like, oh, I want to, and I can't seem to organize the release of it. That's kind of exactly where I am in life. I'm like very, like so much in me that I just like want to. You don't even know, Lauren. I, I actually want you to write a book and I want to read the book. I, 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 don't, <laughs> I don't want you to stop talking. I feel like you are processing the thing that I lived through with the industry and the thing that I feel like anybody under the age of 35 doesn't really understand about mm. what, what we're just coming out of and the world we're living in right now. Just even you saying the number of Instagram followers and, and um how meaningless that could be in five years from now. You know, the fact that you just said the number of MySpace followers and, uh, you know, a 25-year-old kid has no idea what that even is when 15 years ago it meant everything. Everything. And 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 the way you keep coming back to this idea that what, what we're doing, what you're doing, is completely independent of all of that and 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 people try to shove you into it or they try to shove it onto us but it has nothing to do with it because what you're doing is your work and i just think it's so beautiful and i think it gets lost so thoroughly in um this modern world and i really love it i feel you know it's funny i listen to you talk and i think about I think about the old adage of ignorance is bliss. And I feel like you're pro you're processing this all in, on such a high level that you've got to be fucking miserable. So and I don't mean to put that on you. I just I just I'm I feel very seen. It's all right. <laughs> oh my God. Um all right. So I feel like uh, see, I, I haven't really followed my my normal trajectory of questions, but let me just I want to hear because you started this clearly so young. Was was it always music? Was there a moment where you knew it was going to be music? Did you have an epiphany moment or was it pre-consciousness for you? It was always music. Um, my dad was a music guy and he, when I was little, my, so my second album from the blue house is, was, you know, a little therapy exercise for me in some ways, because I went back to the house where, uh, where I had been a little kid and you know, your first memory is that mine are around two, three years old. And by that time they had just built this little studio in the backyard. They had friends who were a jazz band and they would be recording out there in the back. And I remember like standing in my bedroom window, I could see the studio and I wished that I had a, like a slide tube, which I'd actually never been to like an amusement park or a water park or anything. So I, I think I was just imagining this was a transportation I could use to like slide in a tube and like go join them in the studio, you know, go join a bunch of people in their thirties in the recording studio. <laughs> My first crush was like on the bass player of, uh, <laughs> of that, of that group of people who are working in that studio. Um, my dad and I used to like listen to Beatles songs and break down the different parts as a preschooler. Like I was learning, you know, the song construction of 
of the Beatles or, or like trying to figure out what was different. Like, why did some, why was there this thing about the Beatles versus the Stones? Like, what was the difference? Um, I don't know. All that stuff seems like it was from the very, from the very beginning. It's just been a lifelong, uh, special interest. What did your dad play? My dad played guitar and piano and stuff, but he, uh, was more into being on the, and, and he would write, he was always very, I don't know how to think. By the way, uh, since telling him I was doing this, he has um, he has become quite the Rhett Miller fan. I oh no! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, but it's great because he and I have always connected over this, like over music, the industry or the music itself, and just it's a thing we can always connect around. So it's good. It's nice to have. It's always wow. nice to have uh, kind of new, exciting things to talk about. But he he played, he was kind of like self-taught. He, he he was an admirer. I think he felt this, he felt uh, this um, suffering, this pain of being able to recognize it, but not be it. That was kind of his story. And I don't know whether it's just a story. I don't know if it's a self-limiting belief. Yeah, do or you think he really couldn't real. be it? I mean, you can you judge his talent to the to be able to say whether like was that true? Could he not? The talent and ear are like one thing, but then mm-hmm. how you integrate those sort of through your psyche and your personality and your emotional self and like what like for example, at what point do you let those voices in about what what's what might be thought about it from the outside? I mean, one of the most important things for me in the actual skill set of writing songs is to know when to keep that door closed. And if you can't, or, or if you've, you have early trauma or if there's something that's getting in the way so soon that it's, if this belief is in, I don't know how much it's stopping him from being in the moment with, in the moment with what's happening and completing the, kind of ride on the inspiration. Do you talk about this with him? Not so much. He likes to push it, put the, he likes to put the conversation back, flip it back around. About you? But he's, yeah. But he's been playing a lot more and he he did uh, a project recently called Frontier Diplomacy with a friend, a guy much younger than him. That's part of what's on there. band camp page. It's like an old guy and a young guy get together and whatever. Um, and it's really, and it's quite cool. And a lot of it is his material and his guitar playing and his uh, songwriting. So he has found outlets. See, that's why I think that it might be about a bit about self-limiting beliefs because in this place where he has no expectation and they don't try at all, they don't promote it. They They don't try at all for the other people's opinions, popularity side of things. They are just, they're, they're trying for pure inspiration. They're trying for making the thing that's the thing it's supposed to be. Um, and then you can do it. So that's interesting. It almost sounds like it's similar to what you are wrestling with, what you've wrestled with mm-hmm. over the years. Like you, you seem like you want the thing that you do. And I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but it seems like you want it to be, more pure than maybe the world is willing to let it be easily. Yeah. 
Um, I think the world wants it to be, to have that period. Nobody wants to feel like, oh, that my favorite band just wrote a song with, you know, that's just like the other ball. song I like, you know, on purpose. Yeah. Okay. So I'm sorry. I said that, but wrong. it doesn't work well. It just doesn't work well. It's not facilitated. I think, I think it's not that it's, I think people want artists to, to do the, the, to do this this thing that we know how to do if we're kind of a, allowed to but then it also sort of wants that to be invisible and for you to be able to be touring at the same time or promoting at the same time or also thinking about what the video is going to look like or engaging constantly on social media etc it's just sort of a it's to me i feel like it's an ad admin problem <laughs> I they, they want you to be the they want you to be this so they want you to be pulling the zeitgeist and and sort of like and plumbing your emotional depths and turning it into something that's like just a little bit weird but also comforting you know that thing i was talking about before and they want you to go through that process and to dig that out of yourself and to to bring it and be vulnerable and all that kind of stuff this is a facilitation of that process is, is every like the the world around us doesn't prioritize this, that space that we might need to be in to do that. Yeah, I think I said the world when I met the business, but maybe yeah. the world, if we're talking about the human beings, they want you to give them something that's real, right? That touches them. Yeah. That touches them. Right. And the business is the, so yes, maybe it is the whole, the whole business because their job should be admin and facilitation, right? Uh, yeah, I guess. Monetization. Mm -hmm. admin. That's admin to me. A gross word. I mean, but but that's the whole point, right? You and I are not supposed to like that, much less know right. it well. So I, I wonder for you, I feel like I feel like so much of what you're wrestling with is um is making art without self-awareness or over self-consciousness. But also, it seems to me like you do a lot of self-examination and like you, or examination full stop, like you, you think a lot about all of this stuff. Are you able to turn it off when you go to make the art? Are you able yeah. to silence the inner critic, the voices that keep some of us from doing the things, from succeeding musically or artistically? Yeah, uh, I think that my frustration is that if I am in that role, if I'm in the role of self-management, self-admin, self-facilitation, then yeah, I will. I am an overthinker. I'm an overanalyzer. I'll I'll tear the whole system down and rebuild it. I'll like come up with like you know all kinds of dinner party conversations to have. But actually, uh, doing that job, I'm not particularly uh, efficient at it. And then and then the artist in me can't have that person in the room and i'm pretty good at that but sometimes i have to have in the past i mean i've burnt it all down like i have i have finished a record and then like disappeared burnt the whole thing to the ground like gone away from everyone i knew and then been able to be you know this artist person i, I don't think that it's like that now i've learned how to have more balance about it and to be able to kind of close one door and be in the room where I'm, where I'm just an artist. It does help to be on my own, own completely for some stages. So 
I don't know, you're more collaborative than I am. And I imagine that there's a, a, a lot of experiences of being in a room with someone and uh, like, it just doesn't happen and you don't feel comfortable. It doesn't click. And um, like part of that might be that you can't, you can't just go for it with that person. You can't be as vulnerable or cheesy or like just let the weird stuff happen and then go like that was weird and move on. I don't even have to acknowledge it was weird. I can just like do something that seems horrible or stupid or weird and just ha and then done. I don't even have to think about it for another second. Um, so I really, and I really value that space. And I guess the thing I'm most frustrated about is that I would just really love to give this other job away completely and be able to silo myself um, in this place where I don't have to think about it. Cause if I think about it, then I'm over there. I'm in the, over there in that headspace and I have to find time to go and close the door on that headspace and be in my place. I want to be where I'm just with the music. And when I'm in it with the music, it's one thing that's beautiful is it turns off this, blah, 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 this over, over action that my brain does with the words and the analyzing and the thinking and all that kind of stuff. And it goes into the sound and the emotional story. And it's so absorbed by that, that I don't have to be in this like zingy overthinking um, space in my head. Do you meditate? I have some experiences with cults um, in my past. Uh, that's for my book. That, that's those stories. <laughs> fascinating um but uh music is my meditation yeah so even just playing a cover song or i don't know just like sitting down and playing you know d minor a like and then seeing where it goes like that's a meditation right there that's definitely my favorite that's the experience that i get i don't i don't really see the point for me of meditation it seems like a struggle to shut my brain up whereas just playing music boom done uh, that comes up a lot and i i mean i my experience is really similar and i love i love the way that you characterize the the playing of music as being a very meditative thing because that's what it's always been for me and for a lot of people yeah. that i talk to for these um I remember once, I don't know if I, I imagine the way you describe it. I imagine that for you, when you're writing a song, you will go into like a place where the chord progression might be happening for like for a long time mm -hmm. or, or whatever. You're like just playing through and playing through and you don't know how much time has elapsed. And eventually mm -hmm. it comes to be a thing. Um, I had a moment like that where there was a my wife's grandmother, an old Hungarian woman was walking through the house and I was alone in the house with her and she was just 85 and she's just wandering through and she would wander through the rooms. Then I was working on a song and the chord progression at that point had probably gone on. I don't know, like an hour, hour and a half. I was, I was getting somewhere with it. And she, she walks through at some point and she goes, Oh, you really love to practice so much. <laughs> I guess, I guess that's what this is. <laughs> yeah, I, I sometimes I really like this uh, format you have here and that there's a, I, I feel like there's a little bit more people talking about process and kind of what it is to us, 
why we do it. And I, I want to share that with more people. And I remember I had this boyfriend in high school, uh, sorry, college. And cause I did two albums and then I went back to school and did a little college and, um, and he was a musician and he wanted to write songs and stuff, but like he had this idea, the sort of achievement side of it or the, um, presentation, presentational side of it was kind of in mind. You know, when people like get together and they're like, we're going to start a band, it's going to be called this and it's going to look like that. And it's kind of all these things that aren't this part that you and I are talking about right now, but the part, that part is really accessible to anyone and could be anyone's meditative practice. And, and I, and I, and I hope that we can keep talking about, about that kind of in the general cultural conversation of, of what that can be in your life. Uh, Cause that's just, it's therapy for me. It's, it's saved my life. I, I don't know. That's such a cheesy oh. thing to say, but if I had been the teenager that I was and I hadn't, um, you know, really started writing songs and playing music as much as I did, I, I really cannot imagine what kind of fucked up life I'd have now or, or, or a life at all. So do you remember your first song songs? I was sort of writing some version of what I thought were songs early on, like a bunch of words that, that I'd have, <laughs> have you ever seen a little kid do something like this? Like I, 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 would, I had a bunch of words on, I was like, this is my song, but every time I would sing it, I'd different. think something different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so when I was 11, I think, uh, I was, I, I joined the middle school rock band at, at my school and I started playing bass and so I think that the first songs that I wrote were sort of weird little, like kind of like bass lines with a vocal melody. And that's what made me want to play guitar. I was like, this doesn't quite, there's something about this that doesn't, I see now why people play guitars and write songs. And so that's when I picked up guitar. The oldest, the earliest song of mine that is on an album is called Fall Away. And it's like a, it's one of those, people continue to discover kind of songs that I wrote it when I was like 15 and got my sister to sing harmonies on it. Um, I used to, I was pretty influenced by Metallica, <laughs> but I played, you know, I've, uh, girl songs. So, <laughs> and I also really like changes in time signatures. Oh God. So I remember one early thing that I had was like, Something like that. And then it switched to. So, yeah, so I was really into. That seems heady, maybe. I don't know, but it's not for me. It's. I think it is maybe a version of this uh, overthinking mind state that I can be in, but like it's through music. I don't know. Is that, I'm just thinking that now. If you're a three-year-old kid who wants to slide into a studio full of 30-something jazz bows, <laughs> that makes absolute sense. So I know you you started to give us this a little bit, and by us, I mean the listeners of the podcast. You started to tell me this a little bit earlier. But if you if you had a piece of wisdom that you would share with your yourself, 
at 21, which is hilarious to me that at that point you were already like a jaded lawyer seeking, you know, yeah. bur burned artist. But if you could go back to her, but imagine that she, instead of back then, like she's now in the post-apocalyptic business of music now, or just in today's world, um, what advice do you think you'd give her? Well, when I realized that you were trying to put, so I have listened to a bunch of your uh, episodes recently. Oh no! And when I realized that you were putting it more in today's context, then it's hard for me to think about it as being like me that I'm giving advice to. And then it feels like I'm giving advice to somebody okay. starting out now. Yeah. And they are coming into such a different um, world that it's, I'm not much of an advice giver actually in general because I've always felt like my my way of seeing the world or or my I feel like I've kind of maybe as an outsider complex or something but I'm just always um curious but not necessarily understanding like I'm really interested in like well why would you do that why would you make that choice and then the more I understand about sort of the reasons people are making their choices and what their values are and what their goals are, they're like, obviously could be very different from mine. So giving them advice, like means I have to know so much about, about them. Um, if I were to answer your question about me and my story, going back to them, mm -hmm. actually the most important one is I would teach myself how to not have an eating disorder. 15 years before I finally did figure that out Ugh. because having this, uh, eating disorder, which is a mental, it is a, yeah, it's a mental disorder more than it is a physical one. And I had it a lot longer than it might've looked like I did. It's it, it saps you. It saps your energy. It distracts you. It takes you out of the, out of the moment, it takes you out of your power and nobody, um, knew how to help me for such a long time. And I think our culture is a little eating disordered uh, in general. Um, I hear a lot of, you know, sort of people talking about willpower and diets and things that they don't eat and cheat days and stuff like that. And there's such a slippery slope to the kind of eating disorder that I had, which is like you go on a, on a diet for a photo shoot or something, and then you push your body into this like starvation mode where there's a part of your like reptile brain that's saying, you know, what's the most important thing right now? Food and as much of it as possible. So now you have a binging problem. Then you're like, oh no, oh God, no. Now the opposite is happening. Now, I have, now I'm binging. I can't stop. I don't know how to control myself. So then you control yourself again. And it's this uh, cycle that I've kind of wound up in for basically 17 years. And I don't know what I would love to know. I would just love to know what my career and my life and my relationships would have been like without this kind of hamster wheel of a of of a syndrome of this thing in me that was running this large part of what was happening kind of inside of me for a long time and that was triggered by my first record and my first photo shoot God, and the industry has always been, it seems like, really terrible to, to women, young women. And yeah. you're so young. Yeah. And you remember what things were like in the 90s? Oh, they were horrible. I was 
honestly just scared of somebody even calling me voluptuous. You would read a, there would be no, like in the, mm. in like a Rolling Stone article, they would give a full opinionated description of a woman's appearance and body, even in, you know, Rolling Stone and spent in the music magazines and not in a way that they did with men. And, you know, you pick up on those things early. Yeah. I mean, there was there was a little bit for men. It was never like it was for women, but it was, you know, even Rob Thomas, who's one of the first people I spoke to for this, had years where because the fucking guy from uh, Third Eye Blind mm. called him out early and said, called Rob Thomas fat in Rolling mm. Stone or whatever. And Rob Thomas, had to talk, he talked about this. He talked about having to really deal with um you know, when you're in the public eye and people are, can say whatever the fuck they want about you all day long. Yeah. But yeah, young women have, have always had it so much worse. And um, I don't know that it's significantly better now, but I think there's a conversation yeah. around it now. Um, I know it's funny that this, this came up when I talked to busy Phillips yesterday for a different thing. I know um, uh, our daughter's age, they have the, um, the gender, the non-binary gender option, which I feel like takes some of the pressure off young women as they enter their sort of, you know, adulthood. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder how much that helps. I, I've talked to people that say it has helped a lot with incidences of, for instance, cutting, self-harm, that kind of stuff. So I, I hope it's a more gentle world. I'm sorry you had to go through that. It's, it's, it's fascinating to hear your perspective on it though, all this stuff. I, uh, I'm not lying when I say, I, I wish you would write a book because I would thank you. read it. <laughs> I would read thank it. You. Oh, Lauren, do you think that's something I would you say ever do? Oh, go ahead. Oh, God. Well, I just wanted to say that I yes. think that the lesson for me is more that, that your state of mind is worth more. It's, it's worth prioritizing than your if you think you can solve your insecurity about your body by changing your body, it's going to be a chase that you'll never win because then aging will come. So finding the place where your peace of, where you can really value that your peace of mind is more important, that being in the attention, putting your attention where your values are and working towards, uh, the thing that matters to you is an internal experience that is worth treasuring. And this other thing will get in the way and you'll never win. Like that's more of what kind of I'm, I mean about, about why to be so careful to not fall into that trap of giving a shit about this thing in, in such a toxic way about appearance. Cause you can do cool shit with your appearance, no matter what your body size is. You can do, you can, you can do something, right? Yeah. Rock and roll has always been about that. Um, do you think for you, because it's sort of sounding to me like that the answer for you is, is the work is, is yeah, yeah. letting yourself be more in touch with the work than in touch with a photo shoot representation of yourself. or a social media representation, but it's, it's more about the, the art you're making. Hmm. I broke Lauren listeners. <laughs> I 
Well, I don't want to sound like I'm sort of uh, just just always just be obsessed and deep inside of your inside of your work. Um, I don't have a big I don't have a big sense of um, the presentational side of what I do. And I think that it was a fear based thing because I'm not going towards like a thing that's clear that I can say like, well, no, this is my look and this is my thing and this is my vibe that I feel a bit like open to hear hearing about it from the outside and then being a bit afraid that the answer is going to be you're fat or you're unattractive or something like that. And that was, that's where the world is softer now. I think it's less cool to say shit about what people <laughs> look like. Thank God. You know? yeah. I do think that's true. Yeah. I think, it also seems harsher to me in, in some ways, but I think I like what you, what you said about that. And, and the thing I, I see as being true is it's now pretty weird to say like, oh, you know, well, she used to have, you know, this kind of body and now her body is like that. Like, it's not as uh, something that you, you know, that we, that we would talk about on this podcast for sure. And, yeah. you know, in, in a lot of, conversations that I'm around people aren't talking the way they did in the 90s about it yeah certainly our kids are not going if somebody did that at their in my daughter's crew yeah everybody would be like bro what are yeah. you doing yeah. yeah thank god yeah all right well we can, it's I know not we have to wrap up no no no. I'm just saying it's not perfect yet it's not all fixed yet but maybe some things are getting better oh Lauren I love this this is really great I um I, I feel like I've I've kept you for longer than I would keep most people, but I just, I, I think that, uh, I like the way you think about all this stuff. Thank you so much for, for letting me dig into your psyche, your brain, your history, your process. Thanks for being on wheels off. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. It's been wonderful to talk to you and to get to know you through listening to your podcast and and now getting to talk to you um, nice. here. And I really, I really love your new record and I, and I wish you the best of it. Thanks so much. Tell your dad I said hi. That's awesome. I will. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Osiris. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, 
I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday.